CAH Pulse is developed by CARES Foundation to educate and connect the CAH community. Since our guests aren't scripted and are free to speak their minds, their views and opinions do not necessarily reflect the views and policy of CARES Foundation. Now, we hope you enjoy the podcast. Made possible by Neurocrine Biosciences. You deserve brave science. And welcome to CAAH Pulse. I'm Stephanie Erb, your co-host and actress and a mother of a child with CAAH. And with me today is Dina Matos, the executive director of CARES Foundation. Hello, Dina. Hi, Stephanie. I'm so excited to be here for this first part of our two-part series with Leslie. This is CH Pulse, produced by CARES Foundation. CARES Foundation is the only U.S. organization solely dedicated to serving patients with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or CAH, a rare genetic disorder that affects the adrenal glands. We are here to educate, inform, and give hope. And I want to welcome today's guest, Leslie Holroyd. And you will notice in a moment that Leslie is a foreigner. I am. <laughs> You'll be able to tell from her accent. And she can tell us all about where she came from. Welcome, Leslie. Hi, Leslie. Hello, everybody. You know how I feel when you say that about my accent. It throws me off. I love your accent. You know what? I always think I would have a better career if I could just change my name and pretend I'm British and then have an exotic, cool-sounding accent. Leslie is an adult living with salt-wasting CAH. Um, I don't know if you want to share your age, Leslie. Uh, I was born in 1957, so I'll let you work that out. Yeah, you have to do the math. (laughs) (laughs) We're here to share patient journeys so those living with CAH, including caregivers and loved ones, can gain insight and hope about living a full, happy life with this challenging condition. So, Leslie, thank you for being with us today. Uh, We're looking forward to hearing your story. Well, thank you for the invitation to join this podcast. You know, one of the things that happened when I adopted my child who had CAH is I could not find someone to speak to about what's the life expectancy. There were no answers to any of these questions. And it would have been great for me at that time when I had this little baby Mm -hmm. to be able to talk to a Leslie, even with her accent, which I think is adorable, (laughs) by the way. But so, Leslie, can you tell us a little bit about your early life? Because Mm -hmm. I'm sure that it was not something that was widely known about. Um, I don't think my story is quite typical um, because, as you said, I was born at a time when there wasn't a great deal known about CAH. Um, So I was born in the late 50s at home with a midwife. And back then, you know, everybody was born at home. It wasn't an unusual thing to do. My mother already had two boys. And uh, the midwife told my mother that she had another boy. Wow. And that's how it stayed. A few days into my life, I obviously wasn't doing very well. And my mother was not a very well-educated woman. And so fortunately, the midwife did daily visits then. So she came, realized that I was quite a sick baby. And um, I was rushed into the hospital. So once I got there, several tests were done and um, it was confirmed that I was in an adrenal crisis. It was also noted that I had atypical genitalia. And what that actually means is, you know, my labia was fused, um, my clitoris was enlarged, and I had a urogenital sinus, 
which meant that the urethra and the vagina share a common channel when they should be separate. So further testing was done and it was confirmed that I had congenital adrenal hyperplasia and I was a salt waster mm-hmm. and I was severely ill at that time. Six weeks later, um, my mother had to consent to a laparotomy because back then they didn't have ultrasound. That did confirm that I had full um, reproductive system. Mm-hmm. So my mother was told, you know, you have a 46XX genetically girl. She has everything that is required and uh, she's female. My mother refused to accept that. Oh, wow. She wanted to continue raising me as a boy. You were still just a little baby. I was still just an okay. infant, yeah. You know, back then... You know, they didn't know a great deal about it. So I was very unstable. So I ended up living in hospital for two years of my life, the first two years. It was just easier to keep me there rather than in and out, in and out. And, you know, the risk of me obviously dying. Um, And my mother was perfectly happy with that. Also, I I think you're extremely lucky that they even figured that out, frankly. So many kids don't even make it to the hospital. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't know a great deal. It was just easier, I guess, from what I've learned since to keep me there. Mm -hmm. Um, Eventually, I was released back to the care of my mother, and she still continued to raise me as a boy. And um, unfortunately, you know, as time went on, she became more and more neglectful. And then I eventually was removed from her care um, for neglect when I was about three and a half years old. Oh, wow. And I was put in the care of children's services. Now, over the years, you know, I've thought about that a great deal. And I'm very happy that that happened because if not, I don't think I would have been here today. So like if I it. was relying on my mother. Yeah, unfortunately. Do, do you remember? I mean, you were very young when you were in the hospital and then released back to your mom. So you don't. I have no memories whatsoever of my mother, okay. of, of any of the hospitalizations. I do as I got older because I still continue to be in right. hospital a lot, but not at that age, no. So did you go into a foster family after that? Is that what happened next? No. No. No, I stayed. Um, I'm, I was made what they call a ward of court, which means my mother gave up all her parental rights. And I stayed in the children's home until I was 18. Wow. Fortunately, I stayed with the same caregivers, which was a good thing. I wasn't passed around. And I think probably that's because I was sick and nobody wanted me, basically, mm-hmm. I think. So I don't, I don't really know. How did they administer the medications? What, what, what did they use back then? Well, cortisone had just been discovered, I think, back in the early 50s. And wow. they were using it, I believe, in America for like rheumatoid arthritis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was born in England. So I guess somehow the information traveled across the pond and uh, they knew how to treat it to some degree. But with that said, I mean, I was unstable. That's why I was in the hospital so much. And uh, over the years, I was definitely oversuppressed. Definitely. I was given mm-hmm. way too much. For safety's sake, they'd rather oversuppress you than take a chance. Yeah. yeah. You know, we, we heard from Stephanie last time that when she found mm-hmm. out her child had CH, um, she and her husband panicked. I mean, here they were adopting a baby that they thought was healthy. Sure. You know, they were faced with this mm-hmm. diagnosis. Mm-hmm. She probably hesitated, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, Stephanie, but hesitated a little bit and, and wondered what you were doing adopting a child with this rare condition Correct, yeah. mm-hmm. exactly yeah you know so I've been asked over the years how do you feel about being raised in a children's home that your mother gave you up and you know all those kind of comments because my mother did go on and have a whole other family 
Wow. And um, I'm grateful. I'm very grateful she did that because she didn't have the understanding or the ability. And, you know, the doctors as well, they didn't understand. They couldn't educate her like they can do today. Um, There wasn't that support system there. So she would have been really struggling. So um, I'm grateful for it. And and even now here in the US, there are doctors, unless you have some expertise in TH, they don't really know how to treat it. And we find that many patients are oversuppressed. Mm -hmm. Oversuppression is a very common problem. And all the things that come with it, which are not fun at all. It's a miracle that you survived because even here in the U.S., up to as recently as 25, 30 years ago, your babies were dying and it was attributed to SIDS or something else. And it was probably an adrenal crisis. So it is a miracle that, that you survived and that they had at least some knowledge of how to keep you alive. Correct. Yeah. I called whatever doctors I know. And even they, you know, highly educated doctors didn't know that much about CAH this was 22 years ago. It's definitely a situation where the unknown makes you panic mm-hmm. and makes you go, what am I doing here? I don't, I don't know if I should be yes. doing this. Maybe I'm not the person to do this. But I understood the necessity for very specific dosing and the circadian rhythm dosing and the things that people do now that even some parents now I think probably are fudging because they're like, oh, that's probably not important. But it is. It's very Mm -hmm. important. So I'm sure that you are correct, Leslie, that the fact that you went into the protective services kept you alive Mm -hmm. because the parents have to to be on board, you know. I mean, I have some childhood pictures, just a couple, and it's very clear that I'm very moon-faced, I'm very over-suppressed. Yeah, but, you know, I guess they just went by the clinical presentation at the time and that's what they, how they judged it because, you know, the lab work wasn't as sophisticated as it is today. So uh, I guess they just did the best they could and that's okay. Now, it took years and years to develop any protocol with mm-hmm, the lab mm-hmm. work, you know. I mean, it, I was amazed at what kind of precise fluctuations you have to do with medications to make sure the bone age stays correct and everything else you're you're not over medicated but you're not under medicated so then you're in danger especially when you're little yeah and and that's probably why i'm not even five feet so you know um so they i don't think they paid much attention to bone age as i was growing up as they do today so uh, well i think they were just trying to keep you alive i mean that was yeah (laughs) i think so yep yeah and they did they did that Yeah. Anyway, um, once I was in the care of the children's home, um, you know, they realized that, you know, being raised a boy was not correct. And um, so I did have the early surgery, um, the restorative surgery. And fortunately, um, even though it's back then, um, it was obviously very successful. I've had no issues with that over the years. So that was great. Amazing. Um, I, I know there is some people out there who've had issues when they had surgery earlier but I did great anyway um so then I was Leslie the little girl I was meant to be so that was great Leslie at what age was your gender officially changed I was four you were when I had the surgery now my birth certificate was not changed and I'll get to that part of the story in a bit but I I knew nothing about it Anyway, um, so um, I missed a lot of early schooling because I was in and out of the hospital. And I was schooled a a small amount in the hospital and I became an avid reader. So that was my pastime. 
So once I got into school, I did settle down, but I did go to a lot of doctor visits. I had lab work every few weeks and um, the hospital visits I have some really bad memories of. The doctors would huddle around the end of the bed with their backs to me. They would be whispering, talking, not including me in the care. And I would just lay there. I learned to be very submissive so that I could just get out of there, you know? Mm -hmm. They always wanted to take a peek and they took photographs and this went on and on until I was about Ugh. 12. Wow. That's and I know that doesn't happen today, or at least I hope it doesn't. So well, I'm sure it does actually in some places. I'm sure it does. But uh, yeah. I think the knowledge of how that affects a young person, hopefully that's happening less and less. Mm -hmm. But I'm so sorry that happened to you, first of all, mm -hmm. because yeah. a 12-year-old is a very sensitive creature. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But keep in mind, I knew nothing. I didn't even know I had CAH. I didn't know what it was called. Um, I was wow. just given medication three times a day. And when I questioned that, why am I taking medication? They would just tell me, so you don't die. That was the answer, full stop. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't want to die, so I'll take them, you know? So uh, that's how I kind of grew up with CAH. It was called um, androgenital syndrome. I think that's the correct term in, in the UK. I couldn't even say the word. So, you know, I didn't know it was called CAH, if you can believe this, until I joined CARES. Can you believe that? Wow. I'd never heard it referred to as CAH. So, anyway. Okay, so moving on. My childhood after that was okay. Um, and I got through school and I left school when I was 16 and I went to college. I went on a pre-nursing program. Did In school, were you teased ever or was... Were, were people not generally aware that you were taking these medications? Not aware. Not aware of anything. I, I wasn't aware. <laughs> so there was nothing I could talk about. You just said, I take these meds so I don't die. Yeah, basically. I mean, that was it. And nobody asked. At school, nobody saw me taking the medication. Um, I'd have to go to the school nurse for the, the lunchtime one. So nobody saw it. And I, I was never questioned about it. Did you feel any different or look any different than other kids? Um, I felt a bit different because I knew that if I was outside running too much, I would get tired, I would get hot, and then I'd start to feel sick. For some reason, I used to vomit a lot. I have no idea why. And that used to kind of embarrass me because it would come like what if I was being very physical at school, trying to play a sport, something like that. And that was not an era where they'd say drink a Gatorade or drink a lot of water. So you weren't doing anything to compensate for the salt loss. Yeah. Yeah. Nope, not at all. I had no idea. I was always being watched. I always felt eyes were on me as a child. An adult was always watching me and I had no idea why. And I must admit, I did feel a little bit like, you know, that made me different. Why are you watching me all the time and asking me, how do you feel? Are you okay? Do you need anything? Things like that all the time. When when you talk about adults, adults where? And teachers, the teachers in okay. the school would constantly be coming up and asking me if I was okay. And I, I'd look at them like, Leslie, did you find that irritating that you were constantly being checked in with? Yeah, because mm -hmm. I didn't know why. I feel that my, my child also feels irritated about that. Yeah, but I had no idea why they were asking me. That was the problem. If I understood it a little bit better, I'd, I'd thought, oh, okay, yeah, but no, I had no idea. Right. Um, and then when I was 16, I went to college, um, but just before I started in the fall, I had to go see a social worker. 
and I had no idea why. And when I went, she told me I needed further surgery. And here I am, a 16-year-old, about to go to college, no idea why. And they told me that um, I needed this surgery so that I could have children. I'm like, oh, okay, well, yeah, I want kids, so let's do it then. And it was as simple as that. And so I had the vaginoplasty when I was 16, and I have terrible memories of that terrible yeah you know we all know what we felt like when we were 16 the body image everything and then to be told and plus I'd never been told about the early surgery so I I had no connection there so I didn't understand it I mean it's just amazing that even at 16 you had no idea what condition you had not at all you know Leslie I think the interesting thing is that you grew up not having any communication about what was really happening to you and why. Also, nowadays, the vaginoplasties happen when kids are much littler, like pre-walking even, because they realize that it's traumatic. So that must have been, at 16, a pretty hard thing to go through with no one telling you why. Nope. I was not involved in care, in my care at all. Yeah. My knowledge about having children at 16 was quite limited anyway. You know, I mean, back then there wasn't the same education in schools like there is now or, or wherever you get your sex education from here in the States. But uh, I certainly hadn't had any. So, I, you know. Just amazing that you had no idea at 16 why you were taking medication, why you were having surgery, except that you needed surgery to have children, you must have wondered, well, does everybody else need surgery at 16 to have children? Exactly. Um, And, you know, I had school friends and um, I was going into a pre-nursing program. I kind of, in a roundabout way, was asking questions of my school friends, you know, um, do you have any issues kind of thing? And, you know, I guess in them days, we just didn't talk about those kind of things. It just, we just didn't. So I did never really got any answers. Um, and did they feel that the surgery went well? Were they like, yay, you did this thing and now you can go on your merry way? Or was it an unpleasant, unsuccessful experience? Or how did that go? The surgery was successful and pleasant. Um, and not pleasant, but successful. Um, it's, well, yeah, it's unpleasant when it's unsuccessful. <laughs> The dilators afterwards, which was horrific to me, absolutely horrific. I was 16 and naive and, uh, you know, but I got through that. And while I was in the hospital, I did meet a married woman who was there for some other procedure and she was great with me. She was really helpful. And so I had a, a confidant, I guess, while I was there so we could talk. The nurses never said anything to me. The doctors never said anything to me. Um, so I'm glad that I met her and she was able to kind of just she's like a little angel for you yeah exactly yeah Yeah. what was it like going through that without your mother um I'd never had a mother right I'd never had a mother I didn't grow Mm -hmm. up with bedtime stories I didn't grow up with hugs or anything like that I grew up in a very military style you know there was eight children in the homes so I was obviously one of them and um so it was very military style all the time. It was almost like, I guess, boarding school. I don't really know. So from 16 on, you were studying to be a nurse. Yes. And you were in a situation. How long did that take? I was in college for two years. And then at the end of the second year, we applied to the nursing program. 
they declined me. Oh my God. And I was devastated. Because of the health issue? Yes. They'd pulled my medical records and said that I was a medical liability. And I didn't know what to do. So I reached out to the consultant who I'd seen as a young child in one of the big teaching hospitals. And uh, he wrote a letter to them and said, this was ridiculous. You can't do this to her. Anyway, they did accept me eventually. Not to the RM program. They accepted me to the LPM program which I didn't want, but it was a shorter program, less liability, get you in, get you out kind of attitude. And uh, so I see AH people don't go into the army now because they're considered, um, but it's illegal in most professions to do that. Because of I needed medication and, um, you know, I could get sick. Back then it was, they could do whatever they wanted to do. Yeah. Back then, it, they could do whatever they wanted. Yeah. yeah, this was the late 70s, yeah. So this brings up something that is a, of interest to me, the stigma associated with CAH and how that can be so harmful. You know, I look at, back at that and I think, you know, they were so either ignorant, embarrassed, ashamed. I, I don't know what it was. And they just couldn't talk to me about it. And I did hold resentment about that for many, many years as to why they did that to me. Why could nobody talk to me? Right. Wow. Uh, so I got through my nursing and I did great. I actually was top of the class and uh, they realized, I think, what an asset I was to them. I really flourished in my nursing career. I was a nurse for 47 years. I just retired this year. Great. So you went into the LPN program, but then you eventually became an RN. Yeah. What happened was they brought out a bridging program um, a few years later, and I qualified for that because I'd got some experience behind me. I was accepted to that because I'd proven myself. Yay. That's all I have to say about that. Leslie, do you feel like your experience growing up with medical issues made you more apt to be excellent at what you do. I mean, you lived in that environment. I Nurses were my friends growing up. That's all I knew. I, I loved the nurses and I had a special nurse. I always remember her. What was her name? I used to call her Sister Pullman. Her name was Postman, um, but I used to call her Sister <laughs> Pullman or something like that. But she passed away when I was in my later adult years. So, but uh, she was great. I was so excited every time I saw her, you know, so um, she would sit with me for hours and hours and hours. So, but anyway, um, my nursing got going and I met my husband. How did you meet him? Oh, that's a funny story. (laughs) I was working shifts and I wasn't doing very well. My labs were terrible. I wasn't feeling good. And they had me rotating nights, days, evenings, and my body just couldn't cope with it. So I decided I needed to get a regular day job. So I took a job in an occupational health industry. They had a a medical center and I ran the center at night. And there were 300 men. (laughs) And me. So that's where I met my husband. Now, did the CAH affect how different you felt, like in terms of the dating process and all that stuff? Yeah. Um, yeah. When I was in college, put it this way, it, I w- remember I'd had no direction. I had no idea what I had. 
but I'd had this surgery and I wanted to know if I was okay. Mm -hmm. And college life, there's always the parties, the booze, the sex and all that goes with it. So yes, I certainly checked that out. That totally answers my question. And then, so you met this man, what's your husband's name? Um, he was called Alan. Um, he he passed away in 2020. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. So yeah, he was a safety officer. And so it was his responsibility to make sure that everything was okay on the shop floor and, uh, you know, and also, so he would come around frequently and I just thought he was doing his job, you know, but that wasn't the case. He was flirting. <laughs> yeah, he was flirting. Yeah. And he did tell our best man, I'm going to marry that girl, which was really sweet of him. So, oh, I love that. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's where I met him and um, I worked, I was on night shift and again, my body wasn't doing well. I thought if I got on one single shift, I would do okay. No, night shift uh, really, really made oh, me no. ill to the extent I got meningitis and I was in an adrenal crisis and I was in my mid twenties when that happened. Now, at that point, did they have injections for the severe crises or was that not a thing? Well, she didn't know, remember? She didn't know she had TH. I had no idea. I didn't have one. I, I wasn't wearing a medical ID. I didn't know. And actually, he was the one who took me to the hospital because I was so ill. I actually did say, you know, I take steroids or I take this or I take that. And I think then they put two and two together and got my records from somewhere or whatever. Uh, but no, I, I did not wear a medical ID. I'd never been told about stress dosing. I did not carry an emergency injection. I had absolutely no idea. So basically, they put you on an IV of cortisone, probably? Probably, yeah. yeah. Um, I was really ill for a month. It took me a month to get over that. And then moving on into my younger adult years, everything was fine. Um, the meningitis was a wake-up call for me to take care of myself, to make sure that, you know, I took my medications when I was supposed to do um, because I was hitting and missing and it was because of the shifts and I couldn't pull it all together. But that really was the wake up call, you know, because uh, I felt I was going to lose my life. Right. Um, you know, I carried on with my nursing career. Mm -hmm. I then moved into midwifery and then we'd been to the States about, I don't know, three or four times on vacation. We have extended family here. I live in the U.S. now. I came here in 1991. And how long had you been married? I got married in 84. You were making a big shift as you've been married for a while. Yeah. And we had no biological children. So you were told you were having surgery at 16 so you could have children. Do you want to talk about what happened? Did you try to have children? When I was about 17, 18, maybe, I wasn't having regular periods. So I was concerned about that. My All my girlfriends were, and I figured, well, this is wrong. There's something wrong. So I went to my family doctor who referred me to, I guess, a counselor, fertility expert, I don't know what you would call her. And um, she told me um, I could not have children. That's horrible. I should not have children. Um, I should not pass this on. I shouldn't be discussing it with anybody and just all this negative stuff. And the thing is, I believed her. Why wouldn't I? So you never question, nope. like, why did I have surgery? I was told that I had to have surgery in order to have children. Um, she had no answers for me. It was all negative. You know, I had no support system. I, there was nowhere I could go check all this out. There was no social media. You know, I was heading into a nursing program, but there was nothing in the medical textbooks that could help me. 
Um, so I thought, okay, she's correct. She's probably true, you know? Were you devastated? Because you wanted to have children, you said. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, what a horrible thing for her to have done. I was in a relationship at the time and he wanted, he wanted children. So I ended the relationship. Oh, no. And I accepted it. I just thought, well, okay, that's what's meant to be. But you ended up with Alan, so it was meant to be. Yeah, then I, I met my husband-to-be, yeah. And he did come with children. Um, I have a stepdaughter. I love dearly, and we're very close. And I have a wonderful, supportive family. So I'm, I'm very lucky that way. Leslie, that's amazing. From being a ward of the county and living in a community home in England to becoming a nurse and moving to the States, your life's journey with CAH has had so many challenges. Nonetheless, you keep saying you feel lucky. That is really something. You are incredibly inspiring. You really are, Leslie. Thank you. But Leslie's story doesn't end here. Please join us for part two of our two-part series with the extraordinary Leslie Holroyd. Well, she will reveal how and when she finally learned that she had CAH after all these years. Find part two wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, Stephanie. This is CAH Pulse, a CARES Foundation production sponsored by Norikrin Biosciences. For more information about CAH and to connect with us, please visit caresfoundation.org. A special thanks to our producer, Amy Brooks. And thank you for joining us. If you like this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. I'm Dina Matos. I'm Stephanie Erb. And we care. See you next time.